crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Justin Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Vice Squad, released January 22nd, 1982. It was written by Sandy Howard, Kenneth Peters, and Robert Vincent O'Neill, with uncredited work from Gary Sherman, directed by Sherman, and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. Vice Squad actually began as a television documentary about Hollywood prostitution, but when producers Brian Frankish and James Robert Dyer ran up against the limits of what could be presented on television, they switched focus to a fictionalized adaptation of some of the stories they'd collected. E.P. Sandy Howard and Kenneth Peters worked together on a screenplay adaptation. Additional passes were provided uncredited by Robert Vincent O'Neill with the specific goal of portraying the lifestyle as intensely undesirable to any potential young women in the audience. Distributor Avco Embassy recommended director Gary Sherman after a successful partnership on last year's Dead and Buried. Sorry, it's, it's, it just had to stop you there for a second. It's such a male view that he thinks that women go into this because they think prostitution is a desirable lifestyle. Mm. Well, I think <laughs> the point was that they wanted to make sure that it they didn't accidentally portray it as one. Okay. I'm just saying that, like, oh, we should show them that it's bad. It's like, no, nobody's doing this because they have other options. Yeah, but this <laughs> is also the first movie to portray it in such a, like, gritty, gross way. I see. When before okay, well, it had always been like, that's fair. Oh, I guess this is, you know, this is a way that some people make money. Distributor Avco Embassy recommended director Gary Sherman after a successful partnership on last year's Dead and Buried. Lead actress Season Hubley spent 10 weeks shadowing local prostitutes after production. Just <laughs> no, before the film. It wasn't on the Blu-ray, but apparently some versions of this film begin with a disclaimer. The motion picture you're about to see has been produced with the cooperation of law enforcement authorities. Though a work of fiction, it is a composite of events that have actually taken place on the streets of Hollywood. I don't really understand what they would mean by that disclaimer. Like, I no, I understand, like, the based on true events kind of situation yeah. but like why would it give it more credit th that it was made in cooperation with cops just for authenticity's sake to show that this is how these cases are handled by the actual vice squad in los angeles yeah and most of the stuff is shot on location like every intersection they mention they're actually at that intersection and there, there's only a couple scenes that aren't stages almost the entire movie is shot on location where the story is taking place sure Picture opens instantly on a pair of high-heeled shoes on asphalt, and the camera tilts up the length of two bare legs past short shorts and a tube top to a prostitute leaning back on the hood of a car at night. The film's original song, Neon Slime, kicks in, with epic vocals provided by actor Wings Hauser, who portrays Ramrod in the film. Bang, bang, shoot em up, talking about crime. Somebody just bought it in a neon slime. The, the picture that comes up when his name is on screen is like a, a guy getting arrested, but he's got a cat on his <laughs> right, shoulder. <yeah. laughs> yep. Like, what is happening? We see the filthy crime-ridden streets of the Hollywood area. Cop cars with sirens blaring zip up and down Hollywood Boulevard in the glow of neon marquees. Homeless people sleep on the sidewalks as a bearded man with a cat on his shoulder is shoved hard by police against the side of a squad car. Another presumably law-abiding citizen surveys the scene with a dog on his shoulder, and both the man and his pet are adorned with copious buttons celebrating the fifth anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We see more members of the Rocky Horror audience lined up outside a theater waiting for the show to start. We see a bunch of Leatherman bikers and cut away to what looks like child prostitution as a wad of cash is seemingly traded for a young boy. People buy porn, pimps yank cash from the purses of their women, Another man is roughed up against another squad car, and this man appears to be a member of the gay community with what looks to my untrained eyes like a dark pink hanky in his back right pocket, making him a tit torturee. <laughs> but he could easily be an armpit freak because, get this, there are completely different fetishes communicated by light pink, dark pink, mauve, fuchsia, magenta, purple, and lavender. 
So in the wrong light, one could easily be forgiven for mixing these up. <laughs> it never occurred to me before now what a devastating diagnosis colorblindness might mm -hmm. be to a young gay man of the time. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing that for? I'm sorry. Well, just men in general being able to tell colors apart. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose gay men might have a They're probably better, better chance. Yeah. <laughs> See, you're a big fan of pink. Salmon. It's clearly salmon. That explains the fish then. We cut to the next morning where a little girl in pigtails plays with toys in her room. Her mother, played by Susan Hubley, who will come to know as Princess, helps her dress for the day. She's sending her daughter Lisa off to stay with Grandma in San Diego for an undetermined period of time. I guess the girl's actual voice didn't satisfy the filmmakers, so she's been dubbed by an adult, badly impersonating a child, and mixed way too quietly into the scene. I love you, Punky Dog. Do you guys recall the last time a child's voice was distractingly replaced with an adult's? Hmm. I can remember a line of dialogue from the kid. Can we have the dialogue line? Unless it gives it away. Does it give the away? mother is cutting the child's hair, and the kid says, If you didn't cut it, would it grow and grow and grow? I don't know what that is. I don't <laughs> Eye of the needle. Mm. Eye of the needle. Must cut your hair soon. If you didn't, would it grow and grow and grow? I do remember that. Yeah. A woman named Beatrice knocks at the front door and we hear a storm brewing outside. She's here to escort Lisa to Grandma's house. When Beatrice refers to Lisa affectionately as Princess, her mother reminds her never to use that word. The phone rings just as a cab pulls up. Princess urges Beatrice and Lisa out to the cab as she answers the phone. It's her friend Ginger sobbing in a hotel room because she just split up from her abusive pimp Ramrod. Ginger, where are you? I'm at the Hollywood Sunset Motel. Oh, Jesus, he'll find you there for sure. She admits to having stolen 500 bucks from the man, and Princess promises to be there as soon as she can. At the bus depot later, Princess sees Beatrice and Lisa onto a bus, and then they all say tearful goodbyes, even the adult voicing Lisa. I want you to come with me, Mom. We cut from Princess waving goodbye to the bus to her in the depot bathroom putting the finishing touches on her outfit for the night. A tight purple dress with matching leggings and eyeshadow. Or maybe it's lavender. I don't know. <laughs> this is the end of the daughter plot. Yep. Well, I mean, we mentioned her a couple times. After yeah, this. yeah, but I mean, it's just like nothing about like I need to get to my daughter yeah. or I'm trying like, like is this, this is it. At this point, I was certain that she was a, like a member of the Vice Squad going or, yeah, undercover. undercover. That's what I thought too. You know, and it, it, it took me quite a while to realize that that was not what was happening in this movie. Yeah. She immediately catches the eye of a pimp getting his shoes shined, and then she laughs him off. A customer at the curb tries to engage her services, and she clocks him as a cop right away. Do I look like a cop to you? Does the teddy bear have cotton balls? He denies the charge, but when she leaves, he radios in a failed attempt to the station. This is 6, Victor 6. I'll leave the Hollywood bus station now. Are you a cop? You have to tell me if you're a cop. They don't have to do that. They don't have to tell you. No. If you are, it's entrapping already. That's what uh, the pimp says in Taxi Driver. Mm. We cut all around town to girls working the streets, and the first of these shots is at the crossroads of the world, which will forever remind me of that one viral video harshly <laughs> reviewing Los Angeles. Crossroads of the world, my dick. <laughs> <laughs> I still say that on a regular basis. I do too. <laughs> a man in a convertible with graying sideburns offers $50 for a golden shower, and Princess dodges the offer. Sorry, lover, I just went to the restroom. I have a six-pack and $100. You also got yourself a date with Princess Running Water. She hops in the car and they roll off into the night. We cut to abusive pimp Ramrod, played by Wings Hauser, parked at the curb, and one of his girls is doxing Ginger before climbing out of his truck. Boom 109. You got it, Ramrod. He flips a Yui and pulls right into the parking lot of the hotel where Ginger is hiding from him. He pounds on the door to room 109. When Ginger won't let him in, he feigns an apology, but the second she has the door unlocked, he busts in to attack her. He binds her hands with a wire hanger and yanks them hard over her head and then ties her to the headboard with it. He tears down her stockings and ties her to the bed with them and then he takes another hanger and wrenches it into a narrow strip to whip her with in an effort to teach her a lesson that his girls can never leave until he says they can. And apparently this is called a pimp stick when you fold a coat hanger over like this multiple times. They'll refer to it that, that way later. We cut away from the first slap of the hangar to an unmarked cop car with Sergeant Walsh and Detective Edwards inside. 
Edwards, the driver, is trying to remember the code words for all the sex crimes they're prosecuting, and Walsh corrects him where he gets them mixed up. They spot a girl to pick up, and Edwards is invited to try a Jamaican accent to proposition her with. Walsh gets out of the car so he can sneak up on the deal from behind. The girl offers 35 for head, and Walsh swoops in to cuff her. We cut to the station, where all the night's arrestees are being detained. One of them proudly brags that he's no drug dealer but a pimp, and he doesn't belong here at all. Isn't that still a crime, though? Could be wrong. <laughs> I, I I don't know which 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 carries the heftier fine. Yeah, I don't know. I could take a guess. <laughs> I do remember that in Sharky's machine they were letting all the pimps go and they kept all the prostitutes in cages. Of course they were. Yeah. A cop insults a pair of prostitutes by calling them whores. There's a difference. Horse gets away. Stupid. Another cop picks on a younger girl and orders her transferred to juvie, but she doesn't want to be detained. The cop turns over her arm to reveal it's covered in track marks from drug use. Another coked-up prisoner wrestles with a handful of cops on his way into the jail, and one of the desk cops, Mace, is suddenly freaking out about his stolen paper clips. No, somebody stole my goddamn paper clips! Who in the fuck took my paper clips? Every time you need something, fucking slap at you, can't find shit! Now somebody stole my goddamn paper clips! Those were my paper clips! My paper clips! He gets really upset. Yeah. Like, he's on the verge of tears. Yeah. I really wanted later in the movie for, like, Walsh to open his trunk and it's just full of paper clips. It's like, what the fuck? Why did he do that? <laughs> he walks in with, like, a, a suit jacket made of paper clips, like chain mail. It's like, what? No, I've always had this jacket. <laughs> just as Walsh hands over the girl to be processed, he's ordered out to County Bay Hospital. On the way, they're directed to a patient named Ginger Grady. When they get to the room, the woman is unconscious and badly beaten. She seems to wake up when she hears Walsh's voice. He tries to get her to confirm that Ramrod did this, but she insists that Ramrod loves her. She cries out a primal desire to survive this beating, and then her body gives out. Walsh swears vengeance for Ginger. Edwards tells him Princess is back at the station to see him, and he orders her delivered here to the hospital. When she gets here, she doesn't seem pleased to see him. He's waiting for her in a hallway full of dead bodies on gurneys under blankets. He tries to warn her that she's on a dangerous path and there's enough evidence that, combined with her priors, would get her convicted on some serious drug charges. Charges Walsh knows she's innocent of, but he needs her to believe that she'll be locked up for years. And her daughter will be robbed of a mother if she doesn't do exactly what he wants. Lisa, isn't it? Huh? Lisa, Lisa right. She will be out turning tricks before you see daylight again. Now keep in mind, this was done with the help of cops. Right. To show how things are done. Yeah, this is how we do it. Yeah. We blackmail prostitutes into endangering their own lives so that we don't have to. Yeah. She asks for the details, and he says he wants to use her as bait to bring in Ramrod. She's obviously dead set against putting herself in Ramrod's crosshairs. Go tell sand up your ass, Walsh. Do you know what that psycho son of a bitch gets off on? He tells her she doesn't have a choice, and she says she chooses to live in jail over dying at Ramrod's hands. To force her hand, he suggests that maybe Ginger could talk her into cooperating, and then he whips the blanket off the nearest body and shoves Princess face to face with her friend's bruised and broken corpse. Princess screams and flails against him, but Walsh holds her impossibly tight to force her face to face with Ginger again until she has completely broken down. We cut now to a strip club called the Bald Eagle, spelt B-A-L-L-E-D. Princess enters with her sights set on Ramrod, and he's immediately hooked on the bait, when she turns down another man at the bar. Across the street, Walsh and Edwards listen to Princess over a wire, and Ramrod can immediately be heard offering to buy her a drink. Right away, he's making more of a business proposition, offering to manage her working these streets. He suggests they relocate to his place to discuss the details in private. She has to pretend not to be terrified or disgusted when he takes her face in his hands. Do you like that shit? Hmm? Do you like that shit, bitch? I feel like they're taking a pretty big chance here assuming that he's going to try to pick her up that mm -hmm. night yeah. or also assuming that he doesn't know who she is yeah he's obviously why doesn't he he they both work in these streets and he yeah. talks to prostitutes all day yeah and and she's known she knows exactly who he is yeah and and she's known enough that people request her yeah so and she knows ginger yeah so and she, like, she knows ramrod well enough to know that ramrod's gonna find her ginger at the hotel she's like oh he's gonna find you there right away and it's like i i guess from the stories you've told me i've never met him and he's never met me and we don't know each other they leave together back to his apartment as they climb into the car a homeless woman warns princess not to go with him and ramrod scares her away by flicking his lighter in her face 
He gets really close to her hair, and then there's a couple frames where a reflection off a car in the background almost makes it look like he did light her hair on fire, and I started to freak out a little bit. The cops at Ramrod's building, posing as custodians, are informed that he's on the way. Inside his apartment, he offers to make her a drink while she gives him a sample of her goods. Princess asks why Ramrod has an opening at all, and he claims he just fired his main lady for holding out on him. She removes her shirt, and he starts making out with her. Seems like she should be trying to get him to admit to some sort of crime on yeah. tape, yeah. but instead it looks like they're just about to have sex at his place. Whenever he can't see her face, we notice Princess is recoiling with disgust at his every touch. So I think her having a wire is pretty risky in this situation. Mm -hmm. And I was assuming that it was under her clothes. And when he like yep. is undressing her and like handling her, I was just like freaked out that this is where he's going to find yeah. find it. Uh, obviously, it's hiding elsewhere. But what were the what was the plan here? Like what, I don't know cause because she's not asking him anything to leave. Yeah. Right, to. and and so th they they want to get. I mean, the plan is presumably to get evidence of him trying to proposition her to be a prostitute for mm -hmm. him. It seems like that's what they settle on. There's another more serious case. That they could be trying to get him to admit right. to. Right. It's but, it's weird that she doesn't like follow have a follow up question. What do you mean you fired your main lady? Like try and get him to admit to that other huge crime that. But he, he doesn't tonight. know that she's dead. Right. He, but, but but even if she got him to, to confess that him? he beat her unconscious or something. Mm -hmm. like that. But like, were they just gonna let him rape her and like just hope that maybe he talks afterwards? They don't seem super prepared for the whole rest of the film. Yeah. The, 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 there's a lot of bumbling yeah. in this movie. <laughs> That's how you could tell that they actually worked with the LAPD. <laughs> Bizarrely, he suddenly blurts out everything Walsh needs to secure a case against him. You just uh, turn a few tricks for me, give me the money, and I'll take care of everything you need, honey. Really, the whole point of a pimp is to offer protection from violent Johns, but mm -hmm. when your pimp is the only one beating you, then he's kind of defeating his own purpose. The cops all rush into the building and kick into the room to arrest Ramrod. On her way out, Princess informs Ramrod that Ginger died from her injuries and they've got him for murder, which also makes it seem like taping for the pimp charges wasn't that important if he's admitting to beating Ginger and she died from it. She's dead, you know, fuck! Yeah, they set me up, huh? fucking But the surprise in his face when he learns she's dead is so believable that I almost expected a twist where he just swatted Ginger a few times and then somebody else beat her more savagely to frame him, especially since on her deathbed, she blatantly says Ramrod didn't do it. When he thinks he's being set up for murder charges, Ramrod goes nuts and throws off all the cops at once, cracks Princess's head against Walsh's head to knock him to the floor, and then takes her hostage, cuffing himself to her and then holding her like a human shield. Eventually, the cops get him back in their custody and she hawks a big loogie in his face before they drag him away. He promises she'll answer for it until Walsh jams a revolver in his face. You're dead, bitch! You're dead! Come on, come on, come on, come on! Later, over a big meal of hot dogs, <laughs> he just took her to a hot dog place, Walsh assures Princess that the county will give Ginger a proper burial. You need some more hot dogs? We'll get you some more hot dogs. Sorry about your friend. This is this is the least I could do. Yeah, literally. literally. And and he's like complaining about the price. Like it's like three seventy eight for a hot dog. He's like, well, you should have gone to Costco. Yeah. <laughs> Take me all the way out to Burbank. <laughs> Guess it would have been the Price Club back then. Yeah. They share stories of their most gruesome and raunchy jobs that they've had here in Los Angeles. We both live in the same toilet bowl. Thanks for the hot dog. Hey. He offers her a ride home, and he slips her some cash when he learns that she's headed back out to work tonight. She spots a picture of a girl in his wallet. She's pretty. Yeah, she was. I don't think we come back to this detail, and we aren't close enough to see if this is a wife or a daughter, but his response definitely implies that whoever it was is dead now, or at least super uggo. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's his wife, but he's just, like, not happy with some recent changes. It's like, she's pretty. Yeah, she was. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? On the way back to the station for processing, Ramrod is able to reach his legs into the front seat and kick the cops escorting him until they lose control of the vehicle and crash hard into a parked car. 
tipping theirs in the process and shattering the windshield, from which Ramrod emerges, still handcuffed, and books it into the night. <laughs> well, and and they don't pursue him. <laughs> I think they're unconscious. No, because they get up to he. The one cop gets up to take aim, and he won't fire because there's a crowd of people. But they don't get out and start running. Yeah, I don't. Out. I don't know why they put him in an like an unmarked cop car anyways yeah like, there should have been usually a, when you're arresting a, someone you put them you put them in a black and white right yeah. that's got a cage in there it's weird we jump forward to walsh being furious with the men who just let the dangerous criminal go the same night he promised to murder their informant princess he calls for an emergency manhunt to locate either ramrod or princess preferably both as soon as possible we cut away to a man named roscoe sawing off ramrod's handcuffs ramrod thinks he's taking too long and says some racist shit until Roscoe reminds him that he's currently in cuffs. Motherfucker, you don't talk that trappy shit to me, you hear? Now with your hands cuffed, because I'll set your ass on fire, you hear me? When Ramrod is freed, Roscoe sets him up with a car for the night. We cut to Princess, hopping into a car with a John, and in a hotel later, the man pays 50 bucks to suck her toes, cautioning her against washing them beforehand. She picks up on a shame kink, and offers him a spanking when he pays her double his own offer. We see cop cars pulling over along the boulevard to wave photos of Ramrod and Princess and ask if anybody's seen them. Ramrod pulls up to Fast Eddie's and enters through the back door, buzzing into an office to buy guns and switchblades from owner Eddie. He isn't happy with the first gun and jabs it into Eddie's neck until he hands over a second, more expensive option. As with the car, Ramrod assures the man that someone will follow close behind with payment. In this case, he's paying with Coke, for Eddie to deal to people. Ramrod asks who pimps out Princess, and Eddie says she's a free agent. But she used to work for a sugar pimp named Dorsey. For those unfamiliar, a sugar pimp is like a generous, kind pimp. He's basically the opposite of Ramrod. He asks where to find Dorsey, and again, threatens Eddie with his own weapons. If I were Eddie, I probably wouldn't buzz Ramrod through this door anymore. Maybe he makes enough money off of the guy. Walsh and Edwards search the streets for Princess, and we cut to her pulling open a hotel room door to let out a satisfied one-legged customer in a wheelchair. He tells her to reach out to him if she ever makes the move to San Diego, implying that he's willing to make that drive for her. I feel like this movie is doing a really weird thing with her and trying to make her like this prostitute a with a heart of yep. gold who does yeah. old people and cripples. You know, it's just like, wh- it's just like what? Aw. Our hero is willing to pee on a guy. That's so, <laughs> that's so sweet. So sweet of her. We cut to a club where a woman approaches a man named Silky with photographs of the missing persons. He doesn't recognize her as an undercover cop because she's undercover. And he tells her to fuck off until she pulls a gun. And her partner gets Silky in a headlock and demands to know where they can find Princess or Ramrod. Silky sends them to Roscoe's garage. Princess steps out of a cab outside Heavenly Dance Hall which I think is a strip club, but we don't see strippers actively stripping here. She and a few of her prostitute friends take stools at the bar to talk through their nights. One of them is the girl who fell for the Jamaican accent, and I think she's credited as Blue Chip. Yeah, Blue Chip. But I don't remember anyone saying her name in the film. A conventioneer wanders out of the nighttime crowd with a Hello My Name Is sticker and makes a convincing offer to Princess in private before they leave together. Ramrod parks outside an apartment building, and when he can't get through the door, he climbs the fire escape. Inside, we see Sugar Pimp Dorsey sprawled across a couch in a bathrobe, and when he answers the knock at the door, Ramrod instantly has him by the balls against the opposite wall. Now, I feel like if you had to buzz in to my building, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go answer the door when someone knocked on it. Yeah. If I wasn't expecting anybody. Or I would look through the goddamn peephole. Yeah, maybe. Unless he had a reverse peephole. Oh. You have to pay extra for that. Very confused. The reverse people. I was making reference to all the weird sex terms that they come up with in this movie. Reverse (laughs) people. Like the cop is explaining to like the new cop what all the things mean. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like, okay, so Golden Showers is peeing on people? And it's like, yeah, seventh grader. How do you not fucking know that? Hey, you know, in the 80s and you didn't have the internet, these things took longer for people to Mm -hmm. find out about. We were peeing on each other in middle school. (laughs) Ramrod asks Dorsey where Princess hangs out while gripping his balls tighter and tighter until Dorsey mentions the Golden Motel in Hollywood. You know the problem that you sugar pimps have? You don't know how to handle your bitches. He cuts off Dorsey's balls on his way out, and we cut to the Golden Motel, where Princess is in the process of disappointing the conventioneer customer by barely moving in bed with him. Hey, bitch, 
What the fuck am I paying you for? She continues playing dead until he finishes and moves to clean herself up in the bathroom when she hears him rifling through her purse to take his money back. She tries to fight him for it, but he leaves with his cash and laughs in her face. Back at Roscoe's... Not just not just his cash. Yeah, extra all, cash. All the everything. cash she has. Back at Roscoe's, the lady cop and partner have a revolver to Roscoe's neck, and he coughs up the make, model, and paint job of Ramrod's wheels for the night. Princess heads downstairs to collect clean sheets for her room when Mrs. Crookshank at the front desk tells her she has a customer waiting outside. As she checks the area, a man reaches out of the alley for her, but when he steps into the light, it's Michael Ensign yeah. in a limo driver uniform. <laughs> he is here to engage her services on behalf of his employer. They were referred to her by a Miss Coco. That's the Asian prostitute girl that she was at the bar with earlier. The chauffeur won't mention here exactly what this job entails. We cut to Dorsey's place, and a detective tells Walsh that Ramrod is headed for the Golden Motel on Sunset and Coenga. Unfortunately, Ramrod is there with a blade to Mrs. Crookshank's neck already. Mendez and Kowalski, the guys who accidentally released Ramrod earlier, skid up to the motel first. Inside, they find Crookshank, still alive but rattled, on the floor behind the counter. You pigs are always alike. A day later, a dollar short. She won't answer their questions, and when they try to get physical with her, her older Chinese companion, Mr. Wong, hops out to fuck the cops up. This is his only IMDb credit, but Mr. Wong here is essentially playing himself, Grandmaster Ark Yui Wong, a martial arts pioneer who brought multiple popular offshoots of kung fu to America from his homeland of China in the 1920s. The 1920s? Yeah, he came out here in his early 20s in the 1920s. Wow. And he was already at that time a, a grandmaster in the martial arts that he was yeah. doing, which is extremely young for him to have attained that title. When Mendez tries to punch him out, he accidentally punches Kowalski, and the two men make a big mess of the room until Walsh and Edwards bust in to arrest Wong. <laughs> and Wong is just pleased yeah. as punch to get arrested here. Yeah, he's like yeah. cracking up as he's getting handcuffed. Crookshank claims she didn't tell Ramrod anything, but Walsh doesn't believe that she would survive with that strategy. She says, I didn't tell him nothing. nothing. Yeah. He's like, well, that means you did tell him something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The fact that she repeated that phrase exactly made me think, okay, she's cheating a little bit here. We cut to Ramrod out on the street talking to a prostitute named Dixie and asking about a big limousine, which, this is Hollywood, he'd have to be much more specific, mm -hmm. but she recognizes what he's describing as Coco's gig. She points out Coco working the corner up ahead, and Ramrod pulls up and just literally yanks her into the car and drives away with her legs hanging out the window. We cut to a mansion, and the chauffeur leads Princess inside. Back to Hollywood, where Ramrod tosses a bloodied and beaten Coco out of his car into a pile of trash bags. At the mansion, Ensign leads Princess to an upstairs bedroom. Back on the street, Ramrod knocks a paperboy unconscious and throws him over a railing oh, to the yeah. concrete bottom of a stairwell 15 feet down. Yeah, he's dead. It's a cool camera trick, because we see this guy go over the railing, and then the camera slowly tilts down, and you see his body at the bottom, so they obviously like moved all the pads and bloodied a guy up to lay back down. Ramrod steals the kid's pickup truck full of newspapers. Back at the mansion, Princess exits the room in wedding lingerie with a bouquet of flowers to the tune of Here Comes the Bride on a pipe organ. I really, really wanted Michael Ensign to be playing the organ. Like it was going to pan <laughs> down and he's down there playing yeah, the organ. Awesome. The chauffeur walks her down the stairs as if giving her away. Before he leads her to the room with his employer, he reminds her not to say a word. He pushes her through the door and she finds a coffin surrounded by candles. Weirdly, there's a man barely visible at the edge of frame as she walks around the casket confused, but in a wider shot, he's gone. So I guess that was just an accident? <laughs> as Princess creeps up on the open casket, here comes the bride morphs into the funeral march for a third use already in only eight films of 1982. When she comes right up next to the man, he sits up and screams at her. He calls Roberts in to lead Princess away. She's failed in her assignment, and Roberts urges her to get out of the dress and into a waiting taxi. He asks if she works tomorrow that he might procure her services on his day off, and she tells him to go screw, but like the bad kind. <laughs> but then she throws the bouquet and he catches it. It's like, oh, I know who's getting married oh. next. <laughs> so, but the old guy, it's just like, what did you expect to happen when you scare somebody? Yeah, if you don't warn her that you're going to pop up and scream in her face, mm -hmm. of course she's going to say something or make a sound or react to you. Like she's literally not supposed to react to that. I don't. 
What did he want to happen? That's that's the question. <laughs> like, I feel like if the, if she was supposed to remain quiet there, then Roberts should have been like, hey, he's going to pop out of that coffin like a fucking jack-in-the-box, and you need to not react to it. But because she didn't expect it, she thought it was just a prank on her, and she got pissed off. Coco manages to claw her way out of the garbage out into the street in front of a passing police car. When someone phones Walsh about it, he races to Coco's location, right past Princess in her taxi and Ramrod in the stolen newspaper truck behind her because he was waiting outside the mansion when she got yeah. into the cab. Moments later and a few blocks away, Ramrod watches Princess buy a stuffed animal from a street vendor and then make a call from a phone booth. It's not just any stuffed animal. She buys a puppet rabbit. A puppet rabbit? Do you recall the last time we had a puppet rabbit? Home movies? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. She's calling her mother to check on her daughter Lisa. Dixie and the Jamaican caller Blue Chip, walking by, notice Princess on the phone and decide to warn her about Ramrod's rampage all over the city, but he sees them coming and runs over Dixie on her way to the phone booth and then crashes through a storefront. Princess runs down a narrow alley away from the accident and is quickly being chased by a horny homeless guy. It's no use, though. Ramrod catches her at the end of the alley and yanks her up into the truck by one leg. When he skids off, the homeless guy snatches up the shoe she left in the street, and we cut right to Kowalski in the mansion's front yard, telling Walsh that Ramrod's got her. Someone saw her getting yanked up into the truck. I thought for sure that this shoe was going to play an important part, like a Cinderella moment. <laughs> the cops spread across the city, keeping their eyes peeled for the truck, and a pair of bike cops spot the truck on Beverly. Walsh advises all pursuing vehicles to leave a long tail and stay out of Ramrod's sights. In the cab, we see he has Princess in a headlock, and she struggles against it. When he gets where he's going, he wrestles her into a freight elevator in a warehouse, and the cops all close in on the location. So from this moment onward, I'm very frustrated with how the cops play it. Because yeah. Ramrod, I think this is accurate to what they would do, though. May, and maybe, but Ramrod has no reason to keep her alive for any amount of time right. here. Yeah. And so, like, I'm surprised that she made it out of that truck alive, let alone into this building. So, like... Stop taking your sweet time and like planning the appropriate time to go up there. You yeah. need to just get in there. Yeah, they're they're because they, they 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 gather up outside the warehouse. And it's like, so how's it look? It's like, well, there's some stairs in the back. It's like, hmm. I think they might yeah. be. Able Can to we get the blueprints from City Hall? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, what are you, what are you doing? No, everybody just get, get casually get into position, but don't do anything until I tell you to. Yeah, and then when I do tell you, f it all up real bad. <laughs> yeah, again. Ramrod drags Princess out of the elevator into a big empty floor of the building with clothes on racks and a mattress with leather restraints in all four corners. She grabs a baton by the bed and bashes Ramrod a few times before running away. Is it a baton? I don't know what it is. It's a long stick. I would have, maybe mm. it's a ramrod. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. She does ram ramrod. He carries a whip to a nearby mirror and inspects the damage to his face and then whips the mirror to pieces. Somehow, in this mostly empty floor, he still has to go around looking for her, and she's doing a terrible job of hiding. <laughs> he can plainly see her silhouette hiding behind a piece of red construction paper hung in a frame. But it's like she's standing in front of a light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. she's So that it's just back, shining yeah. in her face and leaving a big shadow yeah. on the wall. He crashes through the paper to surprise her and wraps the whip tied around her neck. The elevators are shut off, so the cops start coming up from all directions. Fire escape, stairwells, etc. Inside, Ramrod flicks open his stiletto switchblade and starts cutting the buttons off Princess's outfit. We see her strapped into the bed as he starts folding up another pimp stick, a.k.a. a coat hanger. He swats her once with it before Walsh orders the cops inside, and Ramrod shoots back at the cops surrounding him before diving out the window onto the roof. The cops chase him around on the roof, and then Ramrod makes his way all the way down to the street where he steals yet another vehicle to escape in, and Ramrod shoots him down in the street. But it looks like he survives, like people get yeah, to him and yeah. he's okay. So, like, even though we've seen them trade a lot of shots here, nobody died in this whole interaction. But, yeah, like, Ramrod always hits exactly what he's shooting at. Right. And he's also invincible. Like, he, he's very Terminator, the way he jumps out of this window. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care if I fall five stories into the street. I'll just get up and keep running. Walsh follows the stolen van and eventually starts firing on it until Ramrod crashes it under a low-clearance bridge and shears the top off. But insanely, the accident and Wings Hauser climbing out of the car all happen in one shot, implying that Wings, or a good stunt double, actually drove this van and tore the top off with a driver in the car. Ramrod starts shooting back at Walsh, who takes a bullet in the arm but continues pursuing. 
Ramrod sneaks through a big wooden gate into another warehouse and trains his gun on the door, expecting Walsh to follow on foot. Instead, Walsh blasts right through the door, still in his car, and corners Ramrod, crashing into the man repeatedly against a concrete wall of the building. And for the coup de grace, he pins Ramrod to the wall with his grill, punches out the bullet hole riddled windshield, and puts a couple more bullet holes in Ramrod's skull. Like, it seemed like super overkill, but it was so great. The next morning, Walsh returns the bloody stuffed animal to Princess, and she assures him that all his work last night was ultimately meaningless because it's Chinatown. I don't know why you do it. You're never going to change the streets, Walsh. He backs away as she's loaded into the ambulance, and Wingshauser's vocals growl back onto the soundtrack for a reprise of Neon Slime as credits roll over the ambulance pulling away. The end. What does Neon Slime have to do with anything? It's just Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Neon and filth and slime mixed together Times square me i'm just sitting here thinking of like nickelodeon like neon colored slime (laughs) yeah it's pretty cool i want to do a mid journey of uh neon slime i bet that's awesome anyway that was uh vice squad it's pretty cool it it was definitely very brutal. It's it's like one of the more brutal movies we've had in a while. I really loved Wingshauser in this though. He's a complete he's psychopath crazy. and yeah. he's so fun. Like everything he does is completely insane and you're just stuck to him for the yeah. whole movie. Yeah. And he plays his character in a lot more movies. Like this is <laughs> this is very early Wingshauser, but he he kind of got typecast as this complete nutbag psychopath mm-hmm. and uh he does it really well. Yeah, uh, I I I guess for me, uh, the worst, not the worst part, that's not fair to say, but the, the least interesting part was Walsh. Uh, yeah, he's, it's weird. But even Season Hubley is kind of boring. Like, the really, the only person that I'm fascinated by the whole time was Ramrod. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like the comps aren't aren't interesting enough or I don't care about, like, we don't, like, like that one moment where we almost get a character development with, with Walsh, but no, nothing. Yeah, it's like, oh, there's a picture of a person in my wallet. I'm not even going to clarify who this is. Mm-hmm. Could be my sister. Could be my mom. And just how, like, again, incompetent the people that Walsh are, is working with right. are. And it's like, man, this is just painting a terrible picture. Yeah. Uh, and, but I I, th- I thought the movie was, was decent. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it wasn't, like, by any means, like a, a, like a terrible movie. It was just, like, it was very brutal. It's very gritty, and uh, those things aren't usually my bag. Yeah. Uh, I do think it has some tone issues because, for the most part, I feel like the point of it was to be a realistic, like, gritty approach to Los Angeles crime and what these these Vice Squad people deal with on a daily basis. But it has these notes of just blatant comedy. Like, it felt like the prostitution version of Mother Jugs and Speed a little bit, mm. where it was like, why are we doing this scene with a guy coming out of the coffin? Like, that's not yeah. a thing that prostitutes deal with on a regular basis. That's a very weird, specific thing. And it and it takes us so far out of the story that we care about, which is that this woman is being pursued by this maniacal killer. And, and the stuff with, like, Wong doing a bunch of kung fu on the police. It's like, why is this happening? Yeah, like kung fu professor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It felt very pieces. It there, there's so much of it that feels like, oh well, we got to lighten it up and we got to make some jokes here. And it's like, do you like this? Could have been like a very like taxi driver feel mm-hmm. if you'd kept it in the real yeah, world. I, I totally agree. I felt like it didn't know what it wanted to be because there's there's cop movies where they you know it's a rogue cop or there's cop movies where it's like it's super like in-depth procedural like this mm-hmm. is this is how the things work and you know th- or there's a twist coming in it like right. there's like something unusual happens and i feel like this movie did none of those things um in and i was expecting like i was waiting for it and i'm like why is this interesting and now and, and it's possible that sherman was just trying to embrace the campiness a little bit on top of the exploitation and maybe it was because it was a first of its kind type of movie, but I was just expecting more from it. Either go harder into the real life situations of these prostitutes right. or the cops that deal with the prostitutes. Yeah. Or but you you added this whole extra murder thing on top of it that was just like it was a distraction. It was a whole different story. Yeah. And I also doubt that these scenes where Oh, the prostitutes are like, oh, let's all go down to our central perk 
and we'll all joke about all the people that we've had sex with all night. It's like, no, these people don't want to talk to anybody <laughs> after this job. Like, I, I severely doubt that these people are, like, telling all their hilarious sex stories I, I at feel the end like of their shift. It would have been more realistic to the stories that they were trying to tell that a prostitute died and another one was in danger and that's just normal and we're mm. not going to get the entire Los Angeles to police department to chase this guy down that same night because right. it's just like nobody cares. Yeah. It's the whole less dead theory where the cops just like don't follow up on on homeless murders and prostitute murders because they're just like nobody missed them. Yeah. Which also makes it weird that this woman owns like a decent house in the San Fernando Valley. She and, works hard for the money. And like she doesn't read prostitute from the opening scene where she's hanging out with her daughter. Yeah. Um, and she can afford like a full-time nanny to take care of her kid during the day. <laughs> it's like how many extra shifts are you pulling to do, to do that? Well, we never really understand why she's leaving. Uh, because, you know, she sends the kid to go live, live in with San her Diego. mom. Um, yeah. You know, and we don't know, is that because she's losing the house? Is that because she's moving? Or and if if she's moving, why is she moving? Yeah. Because she doesn't have a pimp. She's an outlaw, and, as and a describer. The only explanation we get is that the daughter's staying with the mom in San or the grandma in San Diego, and that she made some sort of a comment to the one-legged client that she was going to move to San Diego long-term. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how quickly she's doing that, if she's raising this money just to follow her daughter there, or if she's planning on working a bunch and saving up a nest egg to take down there. Yeah. Or what's going on. But yeah, there, there's they, there's a lot of backstory that's probably left on the cutting room floor uh, to make room for a lot of this action because it is close to two hours. But I feel like we could have shortened a little bit of the chase. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the chase is it's, it's a great idea in that, oh, he's looking for her and we're looking for her too. And right. We, who are we going to find first? But, you know, we have to find either of them. Right. But she keeps taking clients. So she's in and out of hotel rooms and, and buildings. Because and she doesn't know she's in a chase. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that that's great tension. Yeah. Um, and, and they keep trying to get the word out, uh, you know, to to her, her friends. Uh, but – But she doesn't know until – Dixie gets killed. Right. That he's even out of jail. But, she thinks that he's like behind bars still. Yeah, but that's where but that's where we get like the comedic like uh like I'm gonna suck your toes. Oh, I'm gonna be in a coffin. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, the only real serious one was the guy who didn't pay her. Uh and then that erased all the other ones too. Mm. Did you mean Coco? You said Dixie. Who is Dixie? Dixie is the girl who <coughs> told on Coco. Who was like, Coco up there knows about the limousine. Go ask her. And then she took Coco off the street and beat her up. Mm. But Princess didn't know that that happened to Coco. All all she knows is she was about to make a phone call to her mom to talk to her daughter. And Dixie and Blue Chip walked by. Mm-hmm. And Blue Chip was mad at, at Dixie for selling Coco out. And so when they tried to warn her that, hey, Ramrod's not in jail and he's looking for you. And he's going crazy and all over right the over town. He's right over there. And he, and he took Coco an hour ago. Yeah. And so then he tries to interrupt them from telling her by running over Dixie. So she dies. She's the only prostitute that dies in the movie. And she oh, basically. Ginger. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Ginger Ginger died also. But Dixie dies and they basically like reverse engineered her turning in Coco mm-hmm. as an excuse for her to die. So that it wouldn't be like super sad because oh, it's like, oh, she doesn't have to live with the guilt with ha- of having turned in Coco to Ramrod because she paid the ultimate price for it later. Does Coco survive? Coco survives because she crawls out into the street and gets the police attention and says, Ramrod's on the loose. And, yeah. And and she's the one who tells the police to go to the mansion. And they're at the mansion when they find the next step of the... So, so my question is, they, they, they can only suspect Ramrod in the murder of Ginger. Because when they arrest him, they're not arresting him for murder. Right. They could because they could have because then there would be no need to involve Princess. But he they, does admit to having abused her that night yeah. when they're arresting him. He uh, says, So I smacked her around a few times, so what? Yeah. And then they say, Well, she died from those injuries. And it's up to him to prove that someone else came along after him and did something mm-hmm. worse to her. But I, I still think that you can arrest him as a suspect. For like, sure. Yeah. Like I, I don't yeah. I don't understand why they needed to put Princess in this situation. Yeah, at I don't all. think they needed to. No, th- I don't think they did. Yeah. 
And that's what that's the only thing that's like I other than other that's the only reason that I've like Princess wouldn't even been targeted. I also feel like it's it's odd that Ramrod didn't come to the same conclusion that you and I started the film with that she is an undercover cop because it's like yeah it was a sting operation they wouldn't hire a prostitute to play a prostitute in mm. the scene like the whole point would be that this was a woman pretending to be a prostitute so that I would get arrested she was wearing a wire but for some reason he's confident that she's a prostitute maybe because he's seen her all over town and knows exactly who she is there is one woman cop on like the vice squad right and she's wearing like her sunday best mm-hmm. this entire time this entire chase like she's got this fancy little hat on and yeah. like she's like dr- and the guy she's with is wearing like this like this whole weird suit like neither mm-hmm. one of them is in uniform but they're in costume <laughs> yeah i don't understand what they're wearing and i'm like no it's the 80s but yeah. that doesn't seem like I, I don't know if she's trying to be undercover because it doesn't look like a prostitute outfit right and it doesn't look like nighttime attire but it works because when they go to talk to silky at the club it's like silky has no idea who they yeah. are he's like who are you get the fuck out of here and then not until guns and badges show up is he like oh fuck never mind but then it's like why even be undercover at that point like, did you? Were you gonna get stopped before you reached his table? If you if you were just in uniform, who knows? I think this is a thumbs up for me though, because there's some craziness in here. I could have gone for if we're gonna have silly stuff like a guy popping out of a coffin yeah. and like random kung fu, then I could have gone for a decapitation or an exploding car somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of that happened, so that it, was a little disappointing. It needed to go harder in some direction. Yeah. Um, it's not a bad movie. No, it's not. It's not a great movie. I, I guess I'll give it a thumbs up. Yeah, it's a it's a thumbs up. It's it's for me. It's barely a thumbs up. It's sure. A, like I I feel like giving it a thumbs down is unfair. Yeah. yeah. But but giving it a thumbs up is just like, well, I'm definitely not recommending this yeah. movie to anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I I can think of a single person who'd be like, oh, you should check out Vice Squad. It's the greatest gritty <laughs> prostitution drama I've ever seen. Uh, but so that's we- it's weird to give it a thumbs up, but yeah, I didn't um, dislike it. What are we thinking, Letterboxed, Jess? Uh, so I have it in fourth place out of eight. Uh, it's below Jaws of Satan and above Splits. All right. Uh, I have it in third place. <laughs> and again, our lists are going to be so dramatically different <laughs> as time goes on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that puts it below A Stranger's Watching and above Splits. Um, I have it in second place, actually, uh, which is just under Zoot Suit and just above A Stranger is Watching. Mm. Our director here was Gary Sherman. We saw him last as the director of Dead and Buried. After this, he writes and directs Poltergeist 3 and an episode of the Poltergeist TV series. He also has a writing credit on John Huston's Phobia from our first season. The writer was Sandy Howard. This is his last of five obscure writing credits. He mostly has producing work on films like Man Called Horse, Neptune Factor, Devil's Reign, and The 77 Dr. Moreau. So far on the show, he has produced Savage Harvest. Another writer, Kenneth Peters. Weirdly, he also has credits on 1986's unrelated film Hollywood Vice Squad from director Penelope Spheris, starring Ronnie Cox, Frank Gorshin, Trish Vandiver, and Carrie Fisher. He also wrote on the Blue Thunder TV series. Writer Robert Vincent O'Neill, Previously wrote The Baltimore Bullet and later has writing credits on the full Angel trilogy, which if if you haven't seen the Angel films, it's Angel Avenging Angel and mm. Angel 3. I forget the subtitle on that one. But they're about a girl who is, you know, a grade A student during the day and a prostitute by night. So very okay. similar plot. Could easily be a sequel series to this with Lisa having grown up to be a prostitute to her mother's chagrin. And if I'm not mistaken, Robert Vincent O'Neill also killed Osama bin Laden, but I, I am mistaken. That was Robert J. O'Neill, not Robert V. O'Neill. The music here was from Joe Renzetti, who previously composed the Buddy Holly story, Carpenter's Elvis TV movie, and so far on the show, Fatso, Exterminator, Dead and Buried, and Under the Rainbow. Later, he scores Poltergeist 3, Child's Play, Basket Cases 2 and 3, and Frankenhooker. John Alcott was the DP on this yeah. song. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Uh, He previously lit Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining for Kubrick. We've seen his work since The Shining on Terror Train and Fort Apache the Bronx. Later this season, he lights Beastmaster, and even later, A Man Called Horse 3, Greystoke Legend of Tarzan, and Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. 
The editor here was Roy Watts. He previously cut a couple Sinbad movies, Golden Voyage and Eye of the Tiger. He's back later for Beastmaster, Man Called Horse 3, which is actually called Triumphs of a Man Called Horse. Season Hubley played Princess. She was Priscilla Presley in Carpenter's Elvis TV movie where she met future husband Kurt Russell, with whom we've seen her co-star in Carpenter's Escape from New York. She was the woman, the mysterious woman in the chock full yeah, of nuts. Yeah, nuts. Uh, they were divorcing during this film's production. Before this, she'd also played a similar character, Nikki, in Hardcore. And post-Russell, I didn't see many credits I recognized except for Stepfather 3, the 1996 Humanoids from the Deep TV movie and Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror. Gary Swanson played Tom Walsh. This was his first feature. Later this season, he'll show up in Making Love. Wings Hauser played Ramrod. Amazingly, this is our first from Wings Hauser, but we get him back later this season for Private Lessons Copycat Homework. He connected with director Gary Sherman after his wife at the time, Nancy Locke, had played Linda in Dead and Buried. After this, he's in Deadly Force, Mutant, Tough Guys Don't Dance, and Beastmaster 2. He had a five-episode run as Ty Tilden, neighbor to the Connors, on season five of Roseanne. More recently, he showed up in that killer tire movie, Rubber, mm. as Man in Wheelchair. He's also the father of Cole Hauser. Yeah. Who was watched in, Yellowstone. He was in Goodwill Hunting, Dazed and Confused, and Too Fast, Too Furious. I think he's the bad guy in Too Fast, Too Furious. But he's on, he's on that Yellowstone show, too? Mm-hmm. Cole Hauser is. Okay. Um, and uh, Wings is also the son of Dwight Hauser, who is a screenwriter of various dog-centric adventure films like Nicky Wild Dog of the North, The Legend of Lobo, and five episodes of the OG Lassie series. Pepe Serna played Pete Mendez. That's one of the two cops that let Ramrod go. He was Miguel in Day of the Locust, pink number one in The Jerk, probably punk number one. Punk number, <laughs> punk number one in The Jerk. We've seen him now in Honeysuckle Rose and Inside Moves. Later, he shows up in Scarface, Red Dawn, Silverado, and Caddyshack 2. Beverly Todd played Louise Williams. That must be the lady cop. I guess. She's also back for homework alongside Ramrod actor Wings Hauser. And more recently, she's shown up in Crash and The Bucket List. Nina Blackwood played Ginger. She's best known as one of the OG MTV VJs. She also plays herself as an MTV VJ in the Sandra Locke film Rat Boy. Lydia Lai played Coco. Lydia's back this season in Hammett and later Dr. Detroit and Cannonball Run. Probably Cannonball <laughs> Run too. Yeah, but it was, it's funny because I think in Dr. Detroit she plays a prostitute in yeah. that too. <laughs> Kelly Piper played Blue Chip. She was a nurse in Maniac last season. Her last IMDb credit was as Elaine Hallenbeck in Rawhead Rex. Fred Berry played Sugar Pimp. Uh, he has a name in the film. His name is Dorsey, but that's the one who gets his nuts cut off. He plays himself in a lot of stuff on account of a 65-episode run as Freddy Rerun Stubbs on What's Happening and the sequel series What's Happening Now. Grand L. Bush played Black Pimp. He was Sergeant Atkins in Exorcist 3, Hawkins in License to Kill, Balrog in Street Fighter, and Little Johnson in Die Hard. He's the leader of the Black Panthers in Forrest Gump, Young Zachary Lamb in Demolition Man, Boone in Free Jack, Jerry Collins in Lethal Weapon 2, Boyette in Lethal Weapon 1, and Rudy in Brewster's Millions. Marilyn Coleman played Beatrice Adams. She's Mrs. Walker in Meteor Man. Michael Ensign played Chauffeur. He's the hotel manager in Ghostbusters. He's Guggenheim in Titanic, Bear Ranger's aide in War Games, neighbor in the first house film, and we saw him in Raise the Titanic and more recently Buddy Buddy. Nate Esformes, or Esforms, played the John. He's Virgilio Gonzalez in All the President's Men and Daco of the Malmori in Battle Beyond the Stars. Jonathan Hayes played Dapper Man. He was Seymour Krellborn in the OG Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour, feed me. Vincent J. Isaac played Silky. We saw him last as Jirogi in Savage Harvest. I think that's the guy who, like, the lion comes down out of the fireplace and kills mm. him while he's trying to rest because he's... He's overcome with, with grief from his wife having been killed yeah, by a lion yeah. earlier in the day. Robert Miano played Duty Sergeant. He was blinded agent in Firestarter, and he comes back for Hollywood Vice Squad. Mark Ness played Cab Driver. He's Bill in Without Warning. This is his second of two credits, so we've now covered every Mark Ness film. Stack Pierce played Roscoe. He was Airman in War Games, and he's Claudia's dad in Weekend at Bernie's 2. Yeah, Mike Lentz was in War Games as well. There you go. Barbara Pillavin, or Pilavin, played derelict woman she's what plavin plavin <laughs> pretty lady 
She played older Helen in a league of their own. Is that the the not Gina Davis? Uh, I mean, yeah, because like the two the they have two different actresses playing yeah. the older. It's like they didn't do like the put them in makeup thing. They just right. had two different people. But they used the actresses' voices, right? Yeah, kind of like a well, not what they did for Beetlejuice, because in Beetlejuice or not not Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, it was actually her playing her older self, right? I think yeah. David Raleigh played Gregory the Swish. We've seen him now in Holy Moses, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, and Private Eyes. Cheryl Smith played White Prostitute. She was previously in Phantom of the Paradise and Logan's Run. Hugo Stranger played Old Man at Mansion, and he's Old Bill in Beetlejuice. Who's Old Bill in Beetlejuice? Old Bill? It's the guy who comes out of the coffin, plays Old Bill in Beetlejuice. I mean, is it the guy that runs the hardware shop? I was gonna say it might yeah, be someone in the town. That's 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 got to be it. Do we see any of them face to face? I don't remember. I feel like the camera stays outside the shop when it goes in. Uh, yeah, because like he's sitting out there, he's like talking about like getting a haircut and. Oh yeah, he's on yeah. the porch in the chair. Mm-hmm. That's probably him then. Uh, I wanted to bring up uh, because I asked I asked my dad, um, do you know a Bob or Doug Laird? And he goes, yeah, I know Doug Laird. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Was he, he, was he a consultant or something? Yeah. We, and, he, and he plays – because I saw that there were two motor cops. Yeah. Uh, Probably those two that noticed him driving. Yeah. And I was like – it's like, well, those look like pretty authentic motor cops. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I asked him if he knew Bob or Doug Laird. And he says, yeah, I know Doug. If he, <laughs> then my dad goes, in fact – you and I had dinner with Doug at the Burger Barn like a couple of years ago. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I was like, so I you did? actually had lunch with one of the cops that, that catches Ramrod in this yeah. film. As I thought that was funny. <laughs> that is very funny. Uh, I think that's everything for Vice Squad. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't think it helps our visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, maybe you should join our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash vintage video podcast for access to all of our monthly 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. Patrons are currently choosing between The Great Gatsby, The Sugarland Express, The Super Cops, and The Three Musketeers for a 50th anniversary review next month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Seduction, which IMDb describes like so. A popular anchorwoman, Jamie Douglas, is stalked by a photographer who's obsessed with her and wants to win her affections at any cost. Well, that sounds a lot like eyewitness. Doesn't it? We'll leave you now with a trailer for The Seduction. It's nice out here, isn't it? Yeah, and here we are in the middle of the woods, alone, at night, with no cell service or protection from the elements in a place called... uh, I don't have my glasses on. What does that sign say? Uh, Crystal Lake? Ah, that that, that sounds so peaceful. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Oh, what's that lumbering madman in the woods? Kill, 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 you say? Methinks you've given me an idea for an awesome podcast. 
Well, she sure seems to like the idea. So join me, Patrick Hamilton, and Gina Radcliffe, my partner in crime, for Kill by Kill as we unpack every glorious death, crazy character motivation, and inexplicable wardrobe choice from the entire Friday the 13th franchise and much, much more. Talking about you. Hello, Mary Lou, prom night too. It's guaranteed to be a thrill ride of emotion from two horror film fans with way too much time on their hands. But don't take our word for it. Each episode will be joined by incredible guests, including Hollywood movie directors, film critics, TV execs, horror writers, comedy podcasters, even my date from senior prom. Plus, I'm pretty sure we're the only podcast in the world that asks you to choose your own death adventure. Pending. It's a real navel gazer that everyone should try at least once. So come on over to the not-so-dark side and join us for Kill by Kill on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher right now. Jason's standing behind me right now with a giant knife. <laughs> yes, but it's not a knife. It's just a marshmallow roasting stick. Uh, maybe he just wants a s'more. Everyone loves those, even mutant backwoods killers. But how is he going to fit a s'more through the holes in that mask? 